Welcome to Whores Talk Whore. We're not really whores. We just like wordplay. Welcome to Whores Talk Whore. I'm Sharon. And I'm Melinda. This is part two of our Twin Peaks discussion on sound design with our good friend and mutual Twin Peaks lover, Joe. Once again, I just want to warn anyone who has not caught up on seasons one, two, or three of Twin Peaks, or if you have not seen Fire Walk With Me, that there will be lots of spoilers. Hope you enjoy the rest of our discussion. I want to switch gears just a little bit here and talk about a scene that I particularly love, uh, one of my favorite scenes from The Return. So this would be in episode four of season three. The first time that we hear any similar music from the original series, I mean, right away when we started watching the newest season, that was one of the main differences for me was the sound and the absence of all the music that we heard in the original show. Every episode started with Falling from Julie Cruz. But besides that, you didn't hear that, you know, jazzy, snappy, uh, or like, you know, Laura's song, like all that moody music, completely absent from the series. And in episode four, when Bobby walks into the conference room at the sheriff's station. I knew you were going to say that. He sees Laura's photo and starts crying and Laura's theme starts playing. It was the first time in the return that I actually had a similar feeling to what it was like to watch the original show because up until that point, everything was just so different. Even though I knew I was watching Twin Peaks, it didn't feel like Twin Peaks until that scene. And I'm so glad that David Lynch like threw the diehard fans that like little bone to be like, okay, this is still Twin Peaks. This is still the same show. It may look different. It may feel different, but it's the same show. Um, because the music from the original series is just is it's so iconic and powerful that even just hearing that like 60 seconds of Laura's song, you know, one of the main songs from the original series, it just it took you back and gave you that feeling. And then, you know, like 10 minutes later, you have Michael Sarah as Wally Brando and you're like, what the fuck am I watching? <laughs> <laughs> Which um, I still argue is kind of a hilarious scene, but um... oh, it's it's fucking brilliant. But totally agree. Totally agree. Once again, it's that roller coaster of feeling, you know, you're you're crying along with Bobby, and then ten minutes later you're laughing out loud because the scene with Michael Sarah is just so fucking ridiculous. You're like, what the fuck is this show that I'm watching? Or as my friend said as we were watching the first four episodes, has David Lynch ever seen Twin Peaks? Uh-huh, that's right. Um, One final thought on this. The one issue that I do have with the whole idea of changing Laura's destiny, yeah, she suffers a whole lot in her life. Even still, at the end of Fire Walk With Me, I bawl when we see her in the red room and Cooper puts his hand on her shoulder and the angel is there for her. And she looks beautiful. She's smiling. She's laughing so hard. She's crying. And to me, I was like, she has finally been released from that pain. And so then the start of season three, I kind of feel like, well, what happened almost that she got pulled back from that, that happiness that she had been trying to find for so long. Um, And maybe there's more to that that we need to learn about, but. That's a great point. And I don't have an answer to it, but I would like to segue from that into you, you like one angel there in the red room. How about two angels in Laura Palmer? Aww. Which which brings me to my next scene. Episode 14. Again, another extended situation, probably like almost 10 minutes of basically no dialogue at all. And it's with the sheriff's department group 
heading into the woods, going to Jackrabbit's palace, and that ends in Andy going to uh, what we've deemed to be the White Lodge and kind of, you know, coming out from that. So this is, we talked about what is that Lynchian sound, and this is all of it. I mean, it's extended. It begins with them just kind of trudging through the woods, extended kind of diegetic wind sound, footsteps, rustling of them walking through the underbrush, uh, babbling brook in the background for a long period of time. Like we have a lot of in season three, you know, a lot of long cuts of just people driving, people standing or sitting in silence with each other, people walking in silence with each other. But it's not actually silence, right? There's always something um, undergirding that that's really kind of driving our emotional response. Then they get to Jackrabbit's palace. They're confronted with Nido, Diane, all of that. And then you get this vortex in the sky met with electricity, met with a lot of swirling wind. And you had the same kind of a thing a few episodes previously where Gordon Cole came across this in Buckhorn. And it's I was trying to watch them side by side. And it is it's perceptible. I'm surely not picking up on all the fine points, but the one in Buckhorn which is a vortex to the convenience store and area of evil is just much more chaotic, like a lot more electricity crackling. The sound of the wind is far more up and down in terms of the frequency and the sound. Whereas what we see in episode 14 in the woods, which is going towards the white lodge, there's still electricity, but it seems a little bit more white noisy. Like there's not a lot of ups and downs and peaks and valleys. It's pretty kind of static yeah and the same thing with the, with the wind sound it's also just like a lot less violent and you know a lot you know less kind of volatility there and it's great and you get and then you get andy into the white lodge it's five minutes of the fireman telling the story of twin peaks in sound yeah you know just in, in a series of kind of crackles and pops and wind sounds you get the birth of Judy all the way through the death of Laura into the plan and what they have to do next in like five minutes. It's amazing. <laughs> I also love that it's Andy who's chosen to see yeah. that personally <laughs> and Lucy then at the end. But like that to me also like just added to that moment. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think it's, I think it's cause he's holding Nido's hand. Is that, is that what we're supposed to take away there? Because like when confronted with, this vulnerable creature, he's the one that's kind of offering the most solace and comfort um, while she's kind of exposed and vulnerable in there in the woods. That's that's at least mm. the takeaway that I had. I thought I got the impression that in that whole really you're right. Amazing. Like, I don't want to call it a montage because it's better. I feel like there's a better word for what he sees. But yeah, the like retelling of Twin Peaks through sound and flash images. I, I took it to be that Andy probably at that point it was subconscious because we love Andy, but he's, you know, Andy. I think that he realized he knew that who Nido was and that she needed to be protected. And then later in the, like, the second to last episode, maybe, or whatever, he, is, you're right, he is holding her hand and comforting her. And I, maybe that's why the fireman chose him specifically, because of that empathy that he has. But I was just going to say, he's, he's the most empathetic out of all of them. So he could be... Yeah, exactly. Like feeling her emotions, he might be an empath where he's able to to, to take in everything uh, more than Bobby or uh, I'm sorry, Hawk. Hawk. Well, oh, but Hawk is. You would think Hawk would be like the one who would be in that situation, but yeah, he's also very empathetic. But 
But Andy has his emotions right at the front there. I mean, if yes. you look at like, what is it? Episode one, he's crying when he's taking the photos. And yes. yeah, I, I think it's less about him actually holding her hand, but just more about who he is. And he was sort of meant to be the one to lead them to that next stage. Yeah. And so many of the, everyone in that room in um, episode 17 in the, in Sheriff Truman's office, like they've all had a role to play, right? It's this insane menagerie of people that we've uh, come to, to learn about and love along the way. And everyone kind of has their role as to what they're offering in this fight and what they're doing. And, and this seems to be the Andy role, right? So Bobby's, had has the relationship with his dad and that's kind of opened up. He was able to open up the message to Jack Rabbit's palace and, and that you have Hawk in this conversations uh, with Catherine and being able to find the diary pages. Um, mm-hmm. you, have, you have Sheriff Truman a little bit less so, but I think part of that is because he's the, you know, not the original Sheriff Truman, but again, he kind of is leading this charge and there's to your, all your points, which is totally accurate that like that empathy, that big, goofy heart that Andy has just shining through and, uh, and being put to great use. Absolutely. Yeah. What does Cooper say to him in season two when he thinks he's leaving? Your courage is only exceeded by the size of your heart, I think he says to Andy, oh, which yeah. is totally true. Good recall. Yeah, good pull. I know we haven't really talked about Fire Walk With Me very much, but I want to say that one of my all-time favorite scenes as far as sounds is from Fire Walk With Me in the pink room. Yeah. I mean, the song alone is just like probably one of my favorite Battlementi songs. He he is able to in that scene just capture like every feeling like the whole like druggy boozy party vibe and I love that he has to use subtitles so that you know what the characters are saying because it's just so loud in that space. I can just listen to that music over and over and over again because it just, it really makes you kind of feel sexy. Like you kind of like put yourself into like Laura's shoes and like it makes you feel like her assertiveness and her, she's got so much confidence in that scene. I mean, doesn't that song make you feel sexy? Joe, that question's directed towards you. Oh yeah, no, it totally makes me feel sexy. I mean, few things don't make me feel sexy, but that's, <laughs> that's, that's high up there. This kind of go starts to lead into part of what I wanted to talk about later with the uh, Roadhouse in general. One of the, my feelings initially about why I thought the Roadhouse songs we hear in season three were not random is because I feel like even in the first two seasons, it's pretty clear that like the Roadhouse, it's not just a bar. It's way more than just a bar. It seems to be someplace where both the physical world and the spiritual world for lack of better like the lodge verse i guess they kind of are both in transition in that space like emotions run high um people people either fight or like you know when maddie dies like that emotion sort of is transmitted throughout the entire bar like even bobby starts crying there's a lot more to say to that so i'll put 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 in that but laura leaves her house to go meet jacques at the roadhouse and tells Donna to stay home. And then when she gets to the roadhouse, she meets Margaret who talks about the fire burning. And I thought I had that quote. I don't think I have it exactly in front of me, but essentially I feel like standing outside the roadhouse in that moment, Laura 
is faced with a choice to either just fucking go home and not go more towards the dark side, for lack of a better term here. And she is conflicted, but then clearly decides to go through with her choice of going into the roadhouse and then getting with those dudes and sort of destroying Donna's innocence in the process by showing Donna who she really is. So yes, I think that scene is really amazing in the pink room, but at the same time, it's also in this odd way, really horrifying because it's like Laura's just given in. I mean, you know, sex is great. I'm not saying that like, you know, oh, you evil sinners, but um, like she gives in to her carnal desires essentially and kind of forsakes going in a different direction. True. And so I kind of just feel like, I love that song and I think it's awesome and I agree completely, but at the same time, I'm also, it also is kind of a sad scene for me. Sharon, I'm glad you brought that up because that is an love amazing that scene. Song. That's a great scene. Absolutely. Who's next? Do we want to go into the, the roadhouse and talk about the songs and the performances at the end? I kind of actually, before we get to the roadhouse, I really want to talk about when we first see Laura in the Red Room in part one. Okay. Yeah, please. Especially sound-wise, because I feel like, and I know when we watched the the episodes at your awesome Twin Peaks party that you threw. Um, Joe Joe's going to get upset now. Don't bring that up. Oh, sorry. I invited him. He thought I was kidding. Then he thought I didn't invite him. It's a, it's a touchy subject. Okay. I mean, it sucked. It was terrible. It was really boring. Um, all we did was watch <laughs> the show, and then we left in silence. It was horrible. <laughs> I want to litigate this bit by bit for the next 15 minutes, please. <laughs> Exhibit A. I'm going to pull up a text message. No. <laughs> so I know that we, because we spoke about this like after, because we didn't, we did like the first four hours that night, right? Sharon and, and Spencer, like they, they showed the yes. first two parts together and then we, you guys DVR'd the next two. And... We watched all four hours and then we stayed up for the next four hours discussing it it was rough no one went to bed before 6 a.m <laughs> oh my god and so but i remember though after finish like our initial finishing of the four hours you know cooper's come out and he's like this sort of immobile thuggy and and i remember sharon and spencer and whoever else that was still there at that point at that late hour we were kind of like we don't know how we feel about this because we wanted like our cooper back But it is 25 years later, and people change, things change, and places change. And, well, part of me felt like, oh, my God, there's the double R. Like, I felt like I was back home again. It's like when you go home, and you haven't been home in, like, however many years, and it's still your house, but things are different. For me, seeing Cooper in the Red Room again, it it was a big indicator that something's very wrong, like right from the start. And a lot of it was sound. In the first season, when we see the dream that Cooper has, it's very odd not having any sound at all, but then hearing just the slow approach of Laura's heels on the floor. In fact, one of my friends said that he thought that's the sound that Cooper hears at the beginning and that we hear you know, in part 17, but I don't think it is, but it's really uncomfortable because it's this, it's her heels walking, but obviously played backwards. And then they sort of recreate the dialogue to a degree, but have this other conversation, but 
the moment she gets up to kiss him, it's like they literally recreate the blocking from season one. Absolutely. With the exception of there being no jazz playing, you know, the man from another place is not there. All we hear is silence and her shoes making that weird noise. And while we still don't hear the whisper, we do hear Cooper's audible reaction to it, which does not seem to be positive. All of that made me so uncomfortable because I was just like, fuck, this is not going to, they're not going to let us off easy. This is going to be rough. And then, of course, we go from that silence to that flapping and the noise and then, you know, Laura disappearing with that amazeball scream that she does. But it went from this literally very silent moment to her screaming horrifyingly like that. Again, the extremes. I just, I, how did you guys feel about seeing literally like almost the same scene reenacted, but something's wrong about it. And it's that disconcert. That's the word I'm looking for. It's disconcerting, but in a good way. <laughs> We're speechless. <laughs> and I'm, and I'm sorry, I'm going to say something that I can't, let's not keep this in, but it's, I was trying to think of, so the beginning of episode 18. Yes. All right. It starts with Mr. C in the chair and kind of him becoming uh, marbled. Thank God. And then there isn't a revisiting of that scene, right? Of the, of the kind of Cooper and Laura in the red room. There starts to be, but then actually, if you notice, and this is, I don't even know how I noticed this, but the first time in part one, when we see Cooper go through that whole thing with, with right. Stalling Mike and the arm and all that, the second time around, when he, especially with Leland, when he sees him the first time, he enters from, I think... Like, we'll say... From, a, from Leland's right, as yes. opposed to the second time Leland's left. Yes. I'm of the belief that we're seeing multiple time loops of Cooper, which is why I brought up that other movie that I won't name, because, like, when they see their doubles, like, that's... I, yeah. I'm, I'm fairly convinced that, like, by the time we get to part 18, we don't even know. Cooper could have done this a thousand times by now. We don't even know. I think the first time we see it is, like, literally his first time, too, it, it was the sound or lack thereof that made me go, he's just not going to walk out of the Black Lodge and it'll all be well. Like, there, this is going to be a rough journey. That could very well be the case. It's something I didn't pick up on, but I, that could very well be the case. Obviously, I was very excited to see a Red Room scene and see them back again. And it was the first time we're seeing Laura, I believe, right? Yeah. Was that the first? Yeah. So yeah. it was very exciting, but... Yeah, at, at that point, it was so early on in the show, I didn't have any thoughts on whether he was getting out of the Red Room or not. I mean, I know in teasers, we saw Kyle McLaughlin not in the Red Room, so I knew he was going to be a part of the show somehow. Well, and it is 25 years later, so the door's reopening again, like they talked about in the f- first two seasons. So, but, so I kind of figured that, but I just it was so disconcerting and, and really eerie to watch almost the same exact blocking without that sound. Yeah, except, I mean, obviously there is differences. Laura opens her face up and there's a gold ball floating in the middle of, you know, where <laughs> where her brains and stuff should be. So I, I had no idea really what to make of any of it. 
you know, like mother, until, like mother, like daughter. Right. Well, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I should mention, though, that all of this came to me after like numerous rewatches. Not that first time we watched it for sure. Like this is like. Oh, OK. Yeah. Oh, God. No. Uh, yeah. Like I was sitting there the first time around going, you know what this means? I'm not that smart. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I don't think we can have a, a discussion about sound design without discussing episode eight of The Return. So, uh, Joe, did you want to uh, say anything about that? Uh, quite the undertaking, but uh, I'd love to at least at least kick us off because it's something that is just um, continues to stick with me. It's something I rewatched twice over the past week, and I'm, I'm sure something similar is true for each of you because it's just so powerful. So. I mean, for episode eight, I mean, what we're talking about mostly is I think the beginning is, you know, some real world stuff with uh, Ray and, and, and Mr. C squaring off, uh, followed by the um, the performance by the Nine Inch Nails in the Roadhouse, which is also, <laughs> which is also pretty dope. Put a pin in that, too, because that's going to come that specifically is yeah. going to come into play. Ladies and gentlemen, the Nine Inch Nails. Um, and then it, it cuts to the what is I think widely considered to be this kind of bravura, I don't know how long that is, like 40 minute, 35 minute sequence, beginning with the detonation of a test nuclear bomb in the 50s and in, or I'm sorry, in the 40s in White Sands, New Mexico, and kind of continuing up through the kind of, I don't know, like nine years later, the, the I don't know, the contamination of, of a young girl kind of in a, in a, in a, in a local area. Got a light. We're talking sound, and, and obviously the sound here is very powerful, but I'd be remiss to not talk about the image here. So it starts with this nuclear blast from a pretty far distance where you just kind of see the the, the light of it. And instead of a boom, you're met with this piece, the Threnody for the Victims of Hiroshima, which is a, a composition for strings that was done uh, by uh, Christoph Penderecki in 1960. And it's just these high screeching strings no blast sound. Um, so, I mean, the blast sound is these strings. There isn't a regular kind of sound that you would equate normally with a, with a blast, um, you know, based on our experience consuming media like that. And then this slow, deliberate, grueling pan in just all the way into the mushroom cloud that just seems to take forever. And in a show that, again, on the visual side, I think looks lush in terms of production design, whether by design or not, some of the visual effects I think are a little uh, a, a little goofy, and I think that maybe they're intended to be that way. And, and examples of this are like heads or bodies blinking out, um, the various tulpas that kind of blink out of existence or go from one realm to another. All of that's done in a very, I think, utilitarian way, and that could very well be the effect that they were going for. I'm not criticizing it, but there's something different about this. I mean, this is amazingly detailed, incredibly beautiful, but obviously threatening and sad and horrifying. But the ripples across this landscape as you're getting sucked into that, that's being met with this orchestral composition is just, um, uh, man, I wish I had a, I, I feel like I keep using up my adjectives over and over again. So if any of you guys <laughs> have anything, it's just, it's just, it's, it leaves you gobsmacked. You're just, you're wondering first, you know what it is, meaning you know that this is an atomic test and you know that the evil that's tied into that. Mm -hmm. You don't know how it plays into the story of Twin Peaks. Uh, you're going to get to that. But you're just like, okay, so you're going to go back to this, again, more kind of elemental experience of, 
of this uh, this evil being unleashed in the world, and that's exactly what it is, right? The unle- the evil is being unleashed in terms of man being able to harness this atomic power for destructive capabilities, mm-hmm. and the result of that is this seemingly the creation of, or the awakening of, or the strengthening of Judy, this other kind of demonic evil force that then as this mother of destruction kind of gives birth to Bob, gives birth to a series of eggs that seem to turn into these delightful cockroach frog figures (laughs) and gives birth to or awakens or is somehow tied to these, uh, to the woodsmen that have been in operation here, both in, uh, in the return and, and, and in far walk with me. There's a part of me that's like, well, this is very paint by numbers. Okay. But it, it's not, but it's, it's, it's again, the, 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 the genius of Lynch and his collaborators where you have, okay, so humanity created this evil and then it kind of opened up or awakened this metaphorical and in, in, in the Twin Peaks world, all too real kind of actual evil that that's a little neat, but the way that it's presented, there's a, a 2001 um, soundscape piece of kind of going through these incredible visuals met with these incredible deep auditory pieces of, of again, electricity, trills, a lot of instrumentation, low thrums, just the, the entire kitchen sink. I mean, everything that they um, probably tried to, to come up with, it, they've layered it in here. It's exhausting almost watching it because <laughs> you're just left trying to kind of use your senses as much as possible to just suck as much of it in and process it as much as you can, whether for meaning in terms of what this means for the Twin Peaks story or just meaning for yourself. Like, what are you getting out of these images and sounds? How is it making you respond? Is this something that you're frightened of, excited by? What comes next? It's just something that I think in this season, he does such a great job of. Um, just so much of it is not holding you by the hand. Yeah. So many of these sonic cues and everything else is just, here is this, here is a long set of just pure experimental, like Stan Brackage, like visions and sounds joined together. What is it that you're going to make of that in your own mind? Sure. I'm going to give you some guidance along the way as it relates to the narrative of Twin Peaks, but um, these are things that are meaningful to me. These are things that I think, are, um, are, are telling as it relates to the human condition and, and what we're all considering and, and how is it that you're going to respond to that? So I know that's a lot, but it's just, it's, it's so damn good. Yeah. Again, going back to the, the books, not to get too far away from sound, but they do in the secret history of Twin Peaks, the like prequel to season three, sort of, but not really. They do talk about Jack Parsons and his work with working on rockets and bombs and and then meeting L. Ron Hubbard and uh, Crowley and all that kind of stuff, which I'm not a huge expert on those guys, but that was all happening at the same time. So like the idea that in real life, there were these people that had this belief that they could summon a demon through the use of, of excessive power and force either psychically or whatever, and then translating that into almost happening literally on the screen with like the explosion resulting in, you know, the mother or whatever, like it just boggles my mind how much they've managed to wrap in, not just design wise, but like, what's the word I'm looking for? Words are hard. Well, with actual history too. Right. Yeah. 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 Right. yeah. yeah. That's, I, I didn't know that. That's a, that's definitely uh additive to that. That's, a, that's, a, that's crazy. Yeah. That a lot of the points you made, Joe, I mean, 
I totally agree with. I mean, episode eight is just a great example of how Lynch can constantly change the mood and feeling of what you're watching. And after that whole atomic bomb scene, then you go from that like whole unnerving sequence to, I believe the next thing is like the soothing wind noises over the purple ocean. And then we go to the firemen and what we're all agreeing on is the white lodge. Sure. But then there's like that beautifully composed music uh, which I think is called The Fireman. And it's just like this very melancholy, almost like heartbreakingly beautiful scene. And that whole scene with, uh, is it Senorita Dido or Dido? I think it's I Dido, to, I think. Dido or Dido, Di- whatever. Yeah, I know who you mean. Everyone knows who I'm talking about. But yeah, you have that beautiful scene. And then you're, you're going right back to, got a light, got a light. You know, and then there's that scene. So you're like on edge again and you're terrified. And then you go into my prayer by the platters, which is like, oh, okay, this is nice. And then, (laughs) no, it's not nice because (laughs) because there's skulls being crushed. And then there's those noises, which, God, I, I don't think they'll ever reveal what they did to get those skull crushing noises. But like those are. Those are visceral. Yeah. And I so appreciated how the camera stayed put, but like he pushed the guy down and all you heard was that sound. Like that was more evocative to me than if they showed him actually like breaking the guy's face open. Oh my God. It's just brutal. Absolutely. And then as you said, Joe, you're, you're kind of um, assaulted with like these visual and auditory, you know, experience. And then the end of it, ends in silence i mean you hear like horses whinnying off in the distance as the um the woodsman leaves and walks off into the dark and then you're um taken back again to what we now know is young sarah palmer sleeping and then it's just like basically silence i think there might be like some cricket noises or whatever but you're just sitting there like like what the fuck did i just witness and also i don't think there has ever been any movie or TV show ever that has a mix of those sounds. <laughs> like, I mean, everything about it, it's, it's visually stunning, but I kind of want to watch that entire episode just with, um, wait, you did that. Didn't you, when we watched that Spencer, didn't you watch that entire episode with your eyes closed or was that another episode that we watched? No, it wasn't that episode. I think it was maybe episode three or something, but yeah, when we started rewatching these, uh, I think it was episode three. I was like, I'm going to just close my eyes and I'm going to listen to the whole thing, mm. which was kind of an, just an interesting experiment because you're not being distracted uh, by the visuals at all. And you can really focus on the sounds. Wow. Just say you're scared. Just say you're scared. Just say it. Just say, it. <laughs> say you can't take it anymore. All right. So I have a quick fun fact about part eight. So this, I think, came from Reddit when the woodsmen are introduced at the beginning of the episode and they start kind of like dancing around Mr. C and rubbing blood all over his face. The music from that scene supposedly is a quintuple slowed down version of Moonlight Sonata from Beethoven. Did not know that. And that's one of my favorite songs. Yeah, it is. I I mean, there's something on on YouTube of of a sped up version. So it certainly is the melody. Uh, that's 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 legit. You can take that one to the bank. <laughs> I'm gonna have to listen to that again because I know how to play Moonlight Sonata. I didn't recognize that, but Spencer caught in part one when we first see Mister C that that's American Woman slowed down 
dramatically no, he distorted. Didn't. Yeah, he did. Spencer mentioned that. What did I say? You were the one who said when we see Mr. C driving for the first time in part one, I think, you were the one I thought who told me later that that song that we hear, that drum and the weird voice, that that's American Woman just completely slowed down and distorted. Uh, I, I'm going to have to say no because I had never heard that song before that, but I, I may have said something like, this is a slowed down song, but I was not yeah. familiar with that song before Twin Peaks. I don't think anyone I know has ever heard that song by Muddy Magnolias. It's a great fucking song. Don't get me wrong. I love that song now, but none of us had ever heard that song before. Right, it's not the, it's not the Guess Who American Woman, right? It's a, it's a different animal. Yeah. It's in the credits, too. And maybe it was Andy then. I don't know. But because I remember being like, fuck you. And then I looked it up and I was like in the credits and I was like, oh, I guess they were right. I wish I could take credit for that, but I can't. Spencer, just do it. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> and then is that the same song that's included that's uh, accompanies Diane's march from like the yes. hotel bar to yes. the FBI room before or uh, Diane's Tulpa before she uh, yeah. makes a very, uh, I don't know, very valiant attempt at, well, she marbles out and heads back to the red room marbles out i like i like that but she oh i could go on about that too but she fights it though because she's still diane underneath and she knows she's not real yeah and that's when she she opens up about the rape from mr it's just it's horrifying Uh, it's amazing this show it's the 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 roller coaster um from kind of almost within each scene as it relates to to the highs and lows and that's one where it's it sticks with you it's very it's traumatic yeah, I mean, her. I have trouble watching that monologue that she does because she's so fucking good anyway, and it's so uncomfortable and horrifying. It wraps up perfectly, though, with Mike uh, revisiting his uh, You Were Manufactured and her responding, I know, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> Any uh, final thoughts on part eight before we move on to the roadhouse? And then I just have one thing to add because you, uh, Sharon, you had mentioned the fireman theme. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just how wonderful that is. And I don't want to shortchange um, Battle of Menti, but I, I don't know how many new pieces that he has that he's credited with through the return, but that one just stands along any of the original run Twin Peaks stuff. That kind of crescendo that, that kind of he keeps revisiting, that kind of walk up that it, it just gives me tingles, which isn't too terribly um, difficult given that most things in the show uh, kind of, give me tingles and, and, and make me excited. But that is just a, a, a tremendous piece of art and the repetition of it, which I think that it kind of goes through that progression a handful of times as he's conjuring or, or you know, developing the, the golden orb uh, uh, yeah. that, that where, where Laura comes out of. It's just, uh, it's staggering. It's wonderful. crescendo the same way that Laura's theme does where it just keeps building and building and building into yes yeah totally uh, climax I was gonna say auditorily orgasm or (laughs) all right (laughs) on that note (laughs) so should we um end our discussion basically with the roadhouse since the roadhouse is kind of the ending of all the episodes in the return beautiful do it sure who would like to start um well before 
Before maybe we start with talking about The Roadhouse, this comes from Pitchfork. Dean Hurley said, even though the show's music has been largely defined by those star-studded Roadhouse performances, they were actually never part of the original plan, which completely surprised me when I read this because David Lynch seems like he plans everything years in advance and knows like every, you know, minute second millisecond of what he's going to do visually uh sound wise um but it wasn't in the original script at all and the scenes were actually constructed to allow editorial fluidity to act as a punctuation tool because lynch imagined the return is not a tv show but rather an 18 hour film broken down and shown in parts yeah i honestly though don't find that surprising because the fact that like david lynch literally like finds rando sounds and is like that's cool and then plays with them i could see him totally being like you know what would be really interesting and just throwing it in there like but that's cool to know that info yeah what are your thoughts oh go sorry no no i was just saying i kind of agree with with mindy where it's like you know they they keep the lynch and team kept stressing that this is like an 18-hour movie but it's kind of hard to make that argument when, you know, so many of the episodes kind of end with this musical performance button. But if that's just more of a, all right, we have to break it down into these hour long chunks. Let's find a way to organize it. So we just kind of have this uh, neat way to, to wrap things up. Uh, I think that that makes a lot of sense in, in so little of the story to the extent it exists that, you know, the people in Twin Peaks kind of plays out into the main narrative. It, it certainly does happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but enough of it is kind of standalone. And I just I just love these scenes. Every one of them is just kind of a different variation on what's happening in that town. But yeah, Mindy, I think you've got some great stuff to talk about it uh, in terms of the Red Hot stuff. I hope so. Sharon, what, the quote that you read, did it, can you reread part of that? Like something about fluidity or am I making that up? What? Uh, yeah, it just says that the scenes were constructed to allow editorial fluidity to act as a punctuation tool. Oh, okay, so that's all in all probably what the, the Roadhouse uh, function is. So my initial thoughts, I'm going to say what I initially thought, and then I talk about this article that I found um, that takes it like 20 steps further. I did think that the songs mattered um, to each of the episodes. I, I kind of felt like each song was speaking to a state of either change for the positive or negative. And it seemed like the roadhouse had always, even since the first season, been this place that kind of all dwellers can come and go from. Like, um, you know, obviously the giant appears to Cooper like three times in the roadhouse um, in the first and second season. And then as we watch the third season, we have people kind of coming in and then either like having a shift in their circumstance, like with the random people in the booths that we like never see again and their rando discussions. So overall, I was thinking that like the roadhouse might actually be sort of like a transitional spot between positive and negative and the energies that come into that, be it the people or the dreamers or the musicians even, affect that and when I rewatched parts one and two finally at the end of part two get to the roadhouse we haven't been to the roadhouse yet in season three 
it's first of all hopping and i remember i think i i think i said it after the episode because we had a strict no talking rule during but <laughs> my my first reaction was who the fuck left all, let all these hipsters into the roadhouse um because there's like all these hipsters and the chromatics are playing and whatever but then we see shelly who's like partying with her friends and having a good time and obviously then james comes in with freddie and and there's some sort of indication that you know he, he's got something going on with Shelly's friend. And, oh, look, there's a Renault relative. Like, not Jacques or anybody, but it's the same actor behind you pouring drinks. This is the roadhouse. This is the roadhouse we know. But then we go to the, we see the chromatics. And I love that song. But I feel like the melody is lovely and sort of nostalgic in this way. Kind of like how I felt about the return at that point so far. The other thing is the lyrics to the song that they're singing. Because Cooper, he's kind of off his game. He's lost, literally, we don't know where. We really, I know I wanted to see Cooper, like immediately. We wanted our old Cooper back. And there was a bit that was disappointing to be like, oh God, he's even more lost now. And like, there's a line in the chromatic song where she's talking about being nostalgic. And like, she said, it's something to the effect of like, I saw your picture in a frame and you look nothing like you seem or something like that. And then the chorus is the phrase for the last time repeated in a loop. Right. And Mm -hmm. I was thinking, what if this is Cooper's last chance? So that was my initial reaction. I will say that this article I found on the 28 days or 25 years later site, he takes it a bit further. And he also, he's full on says that he thinks that, uh, the Roadhouse is a, a transitional point between the positive, which would be tied to like the physical realm, so like our realm, I guess, and the dreamer, which is more tied to like the lodge verse, for lack of a better term. Depending on what your circumstance is when you walk into the Roadhouse and your decision that you make while you're in the Roadhouse, that sends you on your trajectory. So he he actually broke down examples of times where like it's it's a pod, like someone making a positive choice and a negative choice it, and that reflecting in the music. I'm not going to really go there. His examples, he mentioned part 5, which is where uh Richard Horn comes into the roadhouse and like assaults the fuck out of that girl. No, it's just gruesome. It's such a it's very uh same kind of power as is it's very bob just in terms of the just directness and the malignancy that he expresses. It's uh, it's rough stuff. And I mean, right before that happens, Chad comes up to him and they, you know, exchange drug money. So like, obviously, like we're not in a great place right now, you know, in the roadhouse. Then he assaults this girl and I didn't know the band. I did look it up and then this guy kind of confirmed this for me. But the song that's playing is by a band named Trouble. <sighs> David Lynch's son's band. Right, thank you very much. I was waiting for somebody to to mention that. Did you guys notice that the Roadhouse announcer doesn't an- introduce every song? Yes. So the first one is the the Nine Inch Nails, and that's the precursor to, of course, Mr. C getting shot, the the woodsman coming and to do their whatever their gross revival act is, and then all of Part Eight. But the song is dark and. I right away, like, the scene is dark in general, all of it. And I was like, this is going to be fucked. Like, I knew, like, you could just, it telegraphed really well what was about to happen. The clincher for me was Audrey. And so, yes, 
the announcer comes out and he not only announces Eddie Vedder as his actual name in real life, but Eddie Vedder's song, which, God, is that beautiful. But it's, for me, Audrey. The lyrics is, now it's gone, and I am what I am, who I was. I will never be again running out of sand. And I just was like, that's Audrey. And the song ends... And this is where I was like, this is not a real, I mean, it's a real place, but there's something supernatural happening. Because then, of course, the announcer announces Audrey's Dance, which is, of course, the name of the track on the soundtrack. It was never referred that way in the first two seasons. So that's Very meta. Right, yeah. And she gets up, people make way for her, and we, oh God, is that a beautiful scene. Somebody online, it actually might have been Reddit too, but I was saying that she makes it, she has a choice to make to like maybe choose to go with the reality or choose to stay in the dreamland. And her, her, that beautiful dance is again, violently disrupted by loud noises and violence and a fight. And she's shot back, no transition, no warning, no nothing to this other realm that, According to the final dossier, they said that she was institutionalized. But my thought is that Audrey is still fighting to come back from whatever trauma that happened to her after the events of the season two finale. And she's not lost. You know, not all hope is gone yet, but because clearly she's still going between two worlds. I mean, she literally gave birth to not a tulpa, but like a half lodge verse person <laughs> like with Richard so that I thought was fucked up because I was like what Audrey what but then and as the credits roll now they're playing Audrey's dance backwards so now we're headed definitely in the direction to end the show and it's gonna start getting into the whole what is reality what is not what is loop kind of thing so that was my Sort of abbreviated, confused version of... That was abbreviated? Sorry. The, dude, the <laughs> author actually talks about each song, and he actually, he talks about, and this is why I was like, I'm not going to get into this because I could talk about this for hours, but he even mentions the lighting designs and how they relate. Yeah, I just think that whatever for whatever reason, the Roadhouse is, it has a connection to the lodge verse and it's where we know that you know in the first two seasons everybody would come and meet and hang out and that was their their spot but then the lodge verse people would come and hang out there too and deliver messages and blah 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 right. uh, so i just i especially with that chromatic song the very first time we watched parts one and two I right away, I, I felt that that was talking about Cooper, like instantly, and, and then return in general. And then as we went through the season, and again, this came to me as we, as we proceeded through the season, I did not right away go, oh, you know, but it just became as like more supernatural things started happening and more non-supernatural, like the two kept meeting at the roadhouse and the songs I felt seemed to reflect what like the decisions being discussed or or the action of that episode and so i don't think that they were random i think that the songs were purposeful and in that way i have two quick things to add to that and then i'm gonna let joe say what he has to say 
Uh, in part three, the cactus blossoms sing Mississippi, and there's a line that says, you look different. I see flashes of you on the surface. I think that's totally relating to Dougie Coop because that's the first time we meet him. Second thing, I think when Audrey's talking about Billy, she's talking about Billy Zane. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> that, I'm that's gonna, all I'm going to say. I'm going to go with that. I'm, gonna, I'm In my heart, that's what I'm thinking, too. I agree completely. Joe, I want you to close out this interview with any final thoughts you have on the Roadhouse or anything else that we didn't cover. Yeah, the Roadhouse stuff, that's thanks a lot for that. Maybe that's a lot to chew on. I mean, a lot to chew yeah. on. <laughs> I know. That's why I was like struggling kind of with how to present it. But, but and it's something like, I don't, I mean, I, I probably think that I, I was about to say that I don't go too deep into the various kind of grand unified theories of Twin Peaks, but I probably do more so than the average guy off the street. But it's one of those things where I always, there's got to be something happening at the Roadhouse. And I think your point on it, clearly with Audrey's dance, you know, whether that means that only the the Roadhouse versions that have the MC or all of those Roadhouse versions, clearly that's happening in her in her mind, right? She has been institutionalized. What we see at the jump cut at the end of her in the white room, that's reality. The roadhouse that she's dancing in, which is the same roadhouse we've been seeing in, you know, most of the episode endings, that doesn't exist. So from that standpoint, there's clearly something afoot in terms of the symbolism of what we're seeing at the roadhouse. And I think that a lot of what you're saying, which I hadn't thought about before about the roadhouse being another kind of nexus between these worlds is absolutely true. I mean, just getting to what, how we see the Lodgeverse and reality intertwine there in the first two seasons and just how fucking weird it is there in the return. I mean, the, yeah. whether it's rashes or whether it's Richard Horn, you know, going crazy on women, whether it's you know, the woman who gets lifted up out of her chair and put on the floor and then just kind of crawls through the dance floor and, and at the end just kind of screams and is met with strobe lights. I mean, that's, Screams and strobe lights. We know that we're not, you know, in Kansas anymore. We're we're, we're in the lodge. So I don't know where the delineation line is between what's real and what isn't. But there's something. There's definitely more there than meets the eye. And the performances themselves. I mean, there's not a non-ass kicker. I think in all of those. I mean, maybe there's a couple, but all the from the chromatic stuff to the au revoir Simone stuff. Yeah. Um, it's the veils that are playing the song when the girl is crawling on the floor. Uh, the Bernardus veil stuff, all of that stuff. The trouble song, it kicks ass. And coming back to the, I love that you mentioned the fact that Audrey's dance is then in the outro credits is reversed. You know, we have we get to spend more time with Julie Cruz. So you get these things that are not. I don't want to say this in a pejorative way, but it's it's. It's fan service, but it's just, it also meshes with the material that's being presented. I think it elicits the kind of response or emotion that at least for me was meaningful and not in any kind of a cheap way, but just in a way that kind of rounds out this, uh, rounds out this world in a very compelling way. Oh my God. How could I not have mentioned Julie Cruz? Because yeah, she appears as we are now going through whatever version of Cooper's, of the Coop Loop. And (laughs) she, she brings us back with the world. Oh, it's the world spins, I think is the name of the song, but it's obviously the song we recognize and it's the voice we recognize and associate with the old school roadhouse and shit's all about to change in the next episode, you know? So yeah, the timing of that, I was like, that was obviously planned. Absolutely. 
All right. Anyone have any final thoughts on sound design in Twin Peaks? I just one for me. I love it's small, but it's every episode. So, I mean, the, the theme song, right? So oh. whereas season one and two, you know, just kind of kicks off right into the theme song. In season three, you get almost 20 seconds of atmospherics. You get almost 20 seconds before that theme kicks off of wind, of like some kind of a simple effect. So like they're already signaling. Like, yeah, we have the theme here and it's perfect and everyone loves it and it's wonderful, but we're bringing something else to the table. We're front loading the fact that there's something else at play here. And that reminder in each episode that there's going to be this other element at play is probably going to be a little bit more dynamic or, or um, uh, it's going to be more in front of your ears than the themes that you were used to from uh, 25 years ago. Just a nice little... Um, auditory reminder of, of what you're in store for. Oh yeah, I, that's a great point, Joe. Because I, I kind of like subconsciously recognized that, but just kind of was like, well, it's a new season, so they mixed it up a little. But I mean, obviously, that yeah, that's beautifully put. Thank you, Joe, for picking the topic because sound design music uh, is as much as I enjoy it and appreciate it. I'm not very knowledgeable about it, so I was. I was kind of scared to tackle this subject, but I did so much research this week and I learned a lot of new stuff that I, you know, was not familiar with before. And, um, yeah, this was a, a really, really good topic to cover. And I can go ahead watching these episodes now and just like fully appreciate the sound quality and just, you know, all the effort and work David Lynch and his team put into creating the sound for the the series, I can appreciate it in a whole new way after uh, doing so much research and talking about this. So thank you so much for giving both of us the opportunity to do that. You know what? I'm pissed off because now I got to fucking rewatch all the episodes with like hardcore headphones and like do it all put myself through all that emotional turmoil all over again no it gets, it gets scary too because uh you know you, you don't with the headphones on you don't know if uh if there's a lodge member coming up behind you and is about to <laughs> you know if someone's going to ask you for a light or something that, you know who knows who's about to come around the corner i echo sharon's sentiments that this was actually i i thought this was such an interesting conversation and who cares if it's all just our own theories or theories that we found online that kind of match with ours or whatever because there is no answer it's, it's up to the dreamer right so the, absolutely you know, that's what we think i just wanted to close because sharon you had asked if there was anything overall about twin peaks that we wanted to mention and i came away with two things that i just want to throw out after 25 years Laura Dern rules and Josie still sucks balls. Mike drop. Amen. No, thank thank you guys. This was, a, I'm by no means a, a sound expert. This is something that, you know, my interest in this almost came about because of this season of television. And so for myself to be able to kind of uh, dig a little bit deeper, do a little bit of research and really uh, immerse yourself in it has been uh, an absolute joy. So thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk a little bit more about it. It's always a pleasure talking with you and um it's sad that we can't do this in person i know we planned before you know all this crazy shit happened in the world to actually get together in the studio and record this episode with you but hey you know i'm grateful that we were able to make this happen still even though we are all in our respective spaces um hopefully we can hang out again soon yeah Uh, i mean he's just gonna have to come on another episode 
I think that's just what's going to have to happen. You are always welcome back. And I do want to give you the opportunity to uh, promote your band, Furious Frank Booth, which I want you to change the name to. (laughs) Uh, We are actually recording right now. It's one of those things that you can almost do uh, during a national pandemic. So furiousfrank.net is our webpage, you know, because of this world we're in, who knows the next time we're going to be playing live. But uh, we got some music on there that you guys can listen to, and there'll be a few uh, EPs, you know, several song EPs uh, that'll be posting there within the next couple of months. One of them is pretty much wrapped up, and then we're, we're recording on the next one now. But Harry Frank Booth, that's a good idea. Well, uh, I'll run that up the flagpole. <laughs> I know that we're biased, but Joe, we've seen Joe's band play an, a few times, and they're always a blast. So we both, I think I can speak for Sharon and Spencer and say that we recommend them highly. Absolutely. When the universe aligns um, in the future at, you know, 2.53 on some day and everything's safe again, we'll, 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 we'll play some songs and you know, you just drive under your nearest uh, high-powered tension line and or you know, your electric lines and you'll be taken right to the right to the realm of Furious Frank. Awesome. I can't wait to do another Twin Peaks episode. This was so much fun. We hope that you all enjoyed it too. Thank you for listening to us. Please rate and review us on whatever streaming platform that you listen to us on. Like we have said, it does help us get more exposure. Uh, It's free. It only takes a few minutes. So we would really, really appreciate that. If you are able to, please subscribe to our Patreon. If you want to have early access to episodes, see exclusive posts, receive cool shit. And the link to our Patreon can be found in our Instagram bio. Check us out on social media. Uh, Mostly we only use Instagram. So, uh, yeah. (laughs) Uh, You can email us at horrorstalkhorror at gmail.com. If you have any suggestions for upcoming topics that you would like us to cover, you can also share any ghost stories, creepy stories, true crime stories, uh, any other stories that you may have that we can read on our show Also, you can write to us and tell us your thoughts on the sound design of Twin Peaks or in the world of David Lynch in general. We can read that on our show as well. Uh, If you have any topics of upcoming Twin Peaks discussions that we could have, send us those. And as always, thanks for getting creepy with us. Thanks for getting creepy with us. Sharon, do you want a beer? Uh, Oh my god.